Rightly so, we as the Christian church, for thousands of years, have talked about the dangers of what has been called legalism. Legalism. And legalism is simply defined as thinking that you can earn your own salvation, or a salvation by your own goodness, or your good works. And legalism is a danger in the human heart. We see it all the way back in Bible times when many Jews thought that they could earn their right standing with God by their goodness or their good works. We saw up in the Reformation with the Catholic Church, and we still see it today with many people who think that they're right with God because at least they're somewhat good or they're better than another person or because of their good works. And Bible-believing churches like ours, for the most part, have done really well in teaching against legalism. And this is good, because legalism is wrong. It's unbiblical, and it is deadly. We can't be saved by our good works or our goodness. As the Bible says in Ephesians 2, if you're a Christian, by grace you have been saved through faith. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. We cannot earn our favor with God. We receive what Jesus has done for us through faith. But perhaps there's something else similar to legalism which might be helpful for us to consider. Something we don't talk about as much, but something that's going to show up a few times in our text this morning. And that is the danger of just presuming to be saved. Just presuming to be saved. It's helpful to talk about because although it's similar to legalism, it's not necessarily the same, and it's something that might even be more prominent for many people today. Here's what I mean. In legalism, someone's trying to earn their salvation by their good works, by their goodness, by how good they are, by what they've done. But when someone just presumes to be saved, they just assume that they're on God's side, that they're right with God without really looking much into it. Maybe because of their upbringing or their church attendance or they've always called themselves a Christian. At the end, they just sort of assume that they're on God's side. Or to say it another way, if the legalist is thinking, God, look, at least I'm this good, at least I'm better than that person. Look at my goodness, my good works. And the person who's just presuming to be saved is thinking, of course I'm a Christian. Of course I'm right with God. I've always called myself a Christian. I've always gone to church. And see, the person who's presuming to be saved might not think that they're saved by their good works. They might not struggle with legalism, but they might not be truly saved because they've always just assumed that they were on God's side. And just to be clear, since this might be a new idea for you, I'm getting this idea of presuming from the Bible itself. We're going to see it happen a few times in our text this morning. But the Apostle Paul even uses this word presume when talking about this. Paul in Romans 2 says that some people, quote, presume on the riches of God's kindness and patience for their salvation. All the while, he says, they have, quote, hard and unrepentant hearts. So some people assume they're on God's side because God is love and God is kind and God is patient, but they've never truly repented themselves. 
And so we need to hear both warnings as we come into our text this morning. Legalism is wrong. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus alone. We cannot earn our salvation. But also, we shouldn't just presume we're saved because we go to church or we've always called ourselves a Christian or we come from a Christian home. And we shouldn't just automatically assume we're on God's side because God is love. Instead, salvation is a real personal thing. We are saved by real grace through real faith in the real Jesus alone. We each need to, by grace alone, have real faith in Jesus for our salvation. Which brings us finally to our text today here in John 8. Here we're going to see Jesus talk to people who claim that they're believers. Believers in God, but also believers in Jesus himself. And we're going to see Jesus offer them freedom. But then we're going to see them presume that they already have it. And when Jesus addresses them about this, they're ultimately going to deny him. And so as you see, this is a tragic thing. True freedom. True freedom is available. But people don't really embrace it. Why? Because they just presume, they're assuming that they already have it. And so here's the outline of our time, how we're going to go through our text, if it's helpful. And we split up our time into three major sections, three major sections. The first, in the first, we're going to see Jesus offer freedom. He's going to offer freedom, and this sets the stage for the whole passage. And then second, in our largest section of, of our text, we're going to see people presume three different times that they already have the freedom. And we're going to see Jesus' responses each time. And then third, we're going to end our time with Jesus himself telling us why people deny him and don't love him back then and still today. So first, Jesus offers freedom. Second, people presume three times they already have it in Jesus' response. And third, Jesus tells us why people deny him. So that said, we'll begin our first section seeing how Jesus offers freedom. This is a short section, only two verses, verses 31 and 32, if you want to look down. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the first important thing to notice is who Jesus is talking to in verse 31. You can see it for yourself. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. And this connects to the last verse of the previous section. Look at verse 30 where John the, the Apostle writes that many believed in Jesus. But as Pastor Jacob taught well last week, we're about to see in our text today that this is not a genuine faith. This is not a genuine faith. And so this sets the scene. From here on, the pronouns, if you will, will continue. He is Jesus talking to them, professing believers. And when Jesus says you, he's talking to people who are professing to believe him. And so that's important for us to consider because there are some things, hard things in this passage. Jesus is not talking here to atheists. He's not talking to people who are even denying him yet. They will. But these are professing believers. Yet people who, as Jesus knows, don't really trust or love him, which we'll get to. So what does Jesus say to them? You see it in that famous sentence by Jesus. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So recognizing that many of them aren't truly disciples, he shows what it looks like. If you're truly a disciple, you're going to abide, which just means 
continue or stay or remain in his word. He makes it about his word, an emphasis we're going to see over and over today. And so what's the result of abiding in his word? And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You know the truth and the truth brings freedom. But as we'll see, these people are going to presume that they already have that freedom. But before we get there, you've probably heard this sentence by Jesus before. It's famous for a good reason. But it's helpful for us perhaps to stop and to ask, but what is this freedom? Or what is this freedom? If you're truly disciples, you will abide in his word, you'll know the truth, and there's freedom. So he's offering us all this morning freedom. But what is this freedom? It's a good question to ask because we Christians can often settle with being vague, right? Agreeing that Jesus gives us freedom, but not knowing what it really is. So what is this freedom Jesus offers us? I want to show you three aspects of this freedom from the text. A freedom that's available to us all, and a freedom that if you are in Christ, you have. So three aspects of this freedom. First, it's a freedom from sin. Freedom from sin. And perhaps this is the aspect of freedom that we are most familiar with, the freedom from sin. You see Jesus talk about this in verses 34 and 36. Verse 34, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is slave to sin. And in verse 36, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So he's talking about freedom from the bondage of sin. We might even call this freedom in the, in the realm of our hearts, our, our desires, our morals, because what this means is that when you come to Christ, you are first forgiven of sin. That's true. In the courtroom of God, the penalty is gone. But then also, you are freed from sin's power, its appeal. You no longer see the world and all its sin and all its stuff is what you really want. Instead, Christ and his gospel is better. And so although we Christians still struggle with sin, that enslavement is broken. So in Christ, there's freedom from sin. That's the first aspect of Christ's freedom. But then there's a second aspect of Christ's freedom here in the text, and it's one I don't think about, that we think about as much. Jesus is certainly talking about freedom from sin. We see it in those verses. But also notice his emphasis on truth on truth in, those, in that famous sentence in verses 31 and 32. I think this is significant. He says we abide in his word and we'll know the truth. That's him, but it's still truth. We'll know the truth, and it's the truth that sets us free. We might call this freedom in knowledge or, or freedom in truth. And before you think that's, that it's not as significant, I really think it is. So although we as moderns, especially in the modern church, emphasize feelings a lot, which in a degree is okay, we all know we're not merely walking around hearts. We think. We have brains. We not only want to love and be loved, but we also want to know. Know who we are. Know why we're here. Know what our purpose is. Know if we matter. Know who God is. And so, so when we come to the Bible and we come to Jesus and we come to the gospel, we find right and satisfying answers. We were made in the image of God. 
We are valuable as his creatures. We are sinful, but we can be redeemed. We have great purpose for God's glory. And one day we know in history, he's going to come back and make everything right again. Knowing Christ and his gospel gives us understanding to who we are, to who God is, to what's going on in the world. And knowing this, there's freedom. We're not enslaved to uncertainty or confusion anymore. We know who we are. We know why we matter. We know what's going on with the world. Then there's a third aspect of freedom. Third aspect of freedom, our final one in the text, and we might call it the freedom of being a child of God. The freedom of being a child of God. This one we see in verses 35 and 36. Verse 35, Jesus says, the slave, that's somebody in bondage, does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In other words, if you're in Christ, forgiven and free in Christ, it's not that you're, only, you're no longer a slave. That's true. But by grace, you also become a son, a child of the living God. And what this means is now you, we are in a right relationship with our Father, with God, and we're living in His world as we were meant to, knowing God, loving God, loving people, filling His world with our Father's glory. That, brothers and sisters, is true freedom. True freedom is not doing whatever you want. And the way we know that is because when we do that, we sin, we hurt ourselves, and we hurt others and we have regrets. Instead, true freedom is living as you were made to live, with joy, with purpose. So there's a huge freedom in being a child of God, knowing you're loved, knowing your purpose, and filling the world with your Father's glory. And so before we move on in our text, I do want to make clear this morning that this is the freedom that Jesus offers today. Freedom from sin, from its penalty and its power, freedom and understanding and knowing who you really are, what your purpose is, who God is, why you matter. And then freedom as a child of God, living in a right relationship with God with joy and purpose for your Father's glory. And so if you're here this morning and you think that you don't have that freedom, I do encourage you now to, right now in the middle of the sermon, to consider Christ to consider coming to him for this freedom, to make a resolution to, to go and remain and abide in his word and to cry out right now, Lord, I do want that freedom. Because of what Jesus did in coming and going to that cross and rising again, he is able to forgive and transform and give freedom to anyone who comes to him by faith. So that leads us though back to the text. So that's the first section. Jesus offers freedom. And now, though, in our second section, we're going to see people presume three different times that they already have the freedom. And in each case, Jesus is going to answer them. So we'll begin with our first presumption in response. This is going to be verses 33 through 38. If you want to look down at your Bibles. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So you can see their presumption, them presuming in verse 33. They reply saying, we're the people of God. We've never been enslaved to anything. We're already free. And so you see what we've been saying. They're assuming they have this salvation, this, this freedom. And so what's Jesus' response? Well, we already saw earlier, verses 34 and 30, through 36. He shows them and he shows us that apart from him, we are in fact enslaved to sin. But with him, we can be forgiven and we become ch- children of God. But he doesn't stop there. You might have noticed how he directly then addresses them in verses 37 and 38. And there he essentially says to them, they don't have this freedom because they're seeking to kill him. And why are they so against him? He says in verse 37, because my word finds no place in you. And notice again, Jesus' emphasis on words and listening in these verses. The reason they don't have freedom is because the word finds no place in them. And in verse 38, he says, I speak words. I speak what I've seen from my father while they're doing what they have heard from their father. And this word focus connects back to verse 31 about freedom. True freedom, again, doesn't come by only abiding in Jesus. He said it comes by abiding in his word. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That leads us, though, to the second presumption and response here in verses 39 through 41. If you want to look down your Bibles again. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. We'll stop there in the middle of the verse. So again, they're presuming. You see it because of their origin, because of their race. And this, brothers and sisters, can happen today when when we presume simply because we grew up in a Christian home or because we go to church. So what's Jesus' response? This time, you see, he, he focuses on their works, on their lives, how, how they give evidence to the fact that they're not really saved. And it's good for us to realize here that this would have been shocking for them to hear because these were, for the most part, very moral people. <laughs> they really tried to be kind. They really tried to be loving. They really tried to obey God's rules. But Jesus says that because they're denying him, they're not gods. But more specific than that, notice again in verse 40, he says, Now you seek to to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. So again, the root issue is not only are they denying him, but they're denying his words. And that proved that they weren't gods. And, And so it is for us. It's not about. It's not about how good, how moral, how rule-following we are. Even if we're trying to obey God's rules, what matters ultimately is do we accept Jesus, and specifically, do we accept his word, his message, his gospel, his word. Because it's important to know over and over, you see it. We've seen it many times. Jesus emphasizes that it's not just that people reject him. They're rejecting his word. 
This is an emphasis we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament doesn't just reveal himself. God reveals himself through his word. And so what that means for us is that if you want to have a relationship with God, you have to have a relationship with God through his word. There's no other way. That's how God has set it up. And Jesus here is just picking up on that. If you accept him, you remain in his word. And if you deny him, you're denying his word. And that's why, brothers and sisters, in our church, we put so much emphasis on the gospel message and on this book. Let's be really clear. This book is not God. God is a real being, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's alive. He's real. But God reveals himself through his word. God speaks. We listen. That's how we know him. That's how he has set it up. That's how it's always been. And that's what Jesus is picking up here. To accept Jesus is to accept him and his word. Which leads us finally to our third presumption and response. Verses 41 through 42. So in the middle of verse 41. They said to him, We were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So here you see they finally, finally they're appealing now to God. They're saying, well, at least we're on God's side. At least he's our father. But that's not it. Notice how they're attacking Jesus. Saying at least they aren't born of sexual morality. And this might be a reference to their knowledge of Mary's virgin birth here. So what is Jesus' response? Verse 42 here, he's crystal clear. You can see it for yourself. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. It's that simple. If you're on God's side, you will love Jesus. You can't say you're on God's side, you know God, you're saved, and not love Jesus. That's what he says. And why is this? He says in verse 42, twice, I came from God and I am here. Later he says, he sent me. In other words, he sent me. I'm from him. You can't say you know and love him if you don't love me. Which allows us to make the simplest application from the whole text, but I mean this, perhaps the most important question you will ever be asked. It's really simple. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Not, not do you believe God exists? Not do you believe Jesus existed? Not do you even believe in Jesus? Again, these people here did. But do you love Jesus? Jesus said it clearly, if God were your father, you would love me. Now it's true, we are saved by faith. We're saved by faith. We are not saved by love. But the Bible is clear that true faith will make us love Jesus. There's a lot of phony faiths out there, as you've already seen. So the question is, okay, so what does it look like to have genuine faith? Well, true faith will produce in us a love for Jesus. 
And so again, perhaps the most basic yet eternally significant question you will ever be asked is, do you love Jesus? That's the issue. Do you love Jesus? And connecting it to what he's been saying throughout a whole passage so far, do you love his words? Words of conviction? Absolutely. We are sinners. Sometimes it's hard to hear. But words also of love, of grace, of purpose, of joy. Do you love this Jesus? Which leads us finally to our final section of the text, where Jesus talks straightforward and tells us why people don't love him. And here you'll notice in verses 43 through 47, we're going to see him give us two reasons why. And you'll see it for yourself because Jesus himself uses the word why and asks the why question twice, and he answers it for us. So according to Jesus, why do people not genuinely trust and love him? Let's look at his first reason, verses 43 through 45. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So you see him ask the why question in verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? And then he answers it right away. Because you cannot bear to hear my word. Once again, it's about his word. You cannot bear to hear my word. But why can't people bear to hear Jesus' words? And you saw it for yourself. He continues to explain why. Because they are of their father, the devil. Hear it again from Jesus' lips. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. There it is. Clear and straightforward. Jesus says some people don't want him, don't really trust him, don't really love him. Why? Because they're of their father, the devil. Let's be honest. This is really hard to hear. This is not easy, but the same does go for anyone who doesn't really trust and love Jesus today. And what Jesus says here. He's picking up on a biblical idea from beginning to end, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where the devil himself was trying to convince people to turn away from God up until today. The Bible teaches that there's not only sin in our hearts that's true, but there's also a real spiritual realm, if you will. There's, there's a real devil, there's real demons that are trying to keep people, trying to keep you and I away from Jesus. This is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that apart from Christ, each of us is, quote, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. It's the devil. So according to Jesus, why do people not accept him? His first answer is they're just following in the way of their father, the devil. And then as he says in the rest of verses 44 and 45, he's really clever here. The devil loves murder and lies. Murder and lies. And so when Jesus comes and he's speaking life, trying to give people life, which is the opposite of murder, eternal life, and truth, which is the opposite of lies, people who are of their father, the devil, won't want to listen. It's a tragedy. So that's the first answer. But that leads us to the second reason. 
The second reason that Jesus says why people don't really listen and love him, and this is verses 46 and 47. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So notice his why question at the end there of verse 46. If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? So why? He gives the answer clearly and straightforward again in verse 47 from his own lips. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear is that you are not of God. So why do people not accept Jesus' words according to Jesus? You are not of God. That's what he says. Those of God will hear his words. And notice, it's not that they hear and then that makes them become of God. He doesn't say that. It's not you hear and then you become of God. Rather, those who are of God first are those who then hear the words of Christ and love Christ and follow Christ. Okay, let's be honest again. Just like the first reason about the devil, this is difficult to hear too. Because you might be sitting there thinking, okay, well, if I'm of the devil and I'm not of God, then, then what's the point? And what's the point? And honestly, to a degree, I think thinking that way is, is sort of good. I think Jesus says these things, says these two reasons to make us feel sinful and helpless. This is especially good for us moderns to hear who want to do it all on our own. We can't do it on our own. We can't do it on our own willpower or decision power. I mean, Jesus is clear. On our own, we're of the devil. We're under his bondage. We can't release ourselves from that. And on our own, we don't love God. We're not of God on our own. And, and so this should make us, it should cut our legs out from under us, if you will, and put us on our knees and make us say, oh man, if I, if I want to listen to Jesus, if I want to love and trust Jesus, God, I need your help. I can't do this. It can't be of me. And so I think thinking that way is partly good. It exalts grace. But here's also a beautiful thing that's implied here. Since it's God, and only God who can deliver us from the realm of the devil. And since it's God and only God who can make us of God, then there's always hope because God can act. Because God can change hearts. So if you're right now, right now, beginning to really hear the words of Jesus and trust him and love him, maybe for the first time, it will be evidence that God is working in your heart. It'll show that you are of God. And this means for, for anyone who's a Christian here, it means that, that we can look at the fact that we actually do trust and love Jesus and want to listen to his words and be amazed. Because of our own, we're of the devil. On our own, we don't love God. But he has worked in us in spite of us by grace alone, so that praise be to God, now we are saved. Now we are truly his disciples. We want to abide in his word. We know the truth, and by God's grace, we are free. 
And so that's our text. Jesus offers freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom in the realm of understanding and knowledge. Freedom in being a child of God. A freedom that's available to anyone who will come to him and love him in his word. But many people just presume they already have it and end up ultimately denying him. But now as we come to a close, I just want to make one final appeal from the text. Just one final appeal from the text. And it's simple and it's perhaps the clearest application that is run throughout our whole passage. And very simply put, it's this. Don't be like them. Don't be like them. Brothers and sisters, presuming to be saved is prominent in America. Where so many people claim to be Christians. It's prominent even in Bible-believing churches. We know the dangers of legalism, but often we can fall into the danger of just presuming to be saved because we, we go to church or we grew up in a Christian home or because God is love. But a true Christian is someone who has personally banked their life on Jesus Christ by grace alone. And because of this, we want to follow him. We want to abide in his word, and above all, we love him. So again, this, this, this text urges us to not be like these people. They assumed they were saved, but Jesus was clear with them they weren't. Instead, I, I encourage you, come to the living Christ. Love him and his word. And if you do so, as Jesus said, you will be free. And whom the Son sets free forevermore will be free indeed. Let's pray. O oh, Father, O oh, Son, O oh, Spirit, we praise you right now for grace. For the fact that you treat us better than we could ever deserve. Oh Lord, help us to glorify you for our salvation. And I do pray right now, Jesus, for anyone in this room who might think that they don't really trust and love you. We know, Jesus, that you do love them. We see how much you love the people you're talking to in this text. You so badly want them to come to you. So Lord, I pray for anyone in here right now that maybe for the first time, by your spirit, by grace alone, they may come to see you as, as better than anything the world can offer, to see you as their savior, and to come to you in genuine faith. But Father, once again, we do praise you for how good you are towards us, even though we can never deserve it. We thank you, King Jesus, for that cross where you went in love so you could die in our place. And we look forward to the day, Jesus, where we see you once again face to face. Until that day, help us to live in this world for your glory. And it's in your good and matchless name we pray, King Jesus. Amen.